2006, September 29th. Today is Lecture 8, Phases of the Moon. That will begin in just a moment. Start the recording, and the second is to... <laughs> Remember to turn off my stupid cell phone. I hate those things. All right. To this point, we've been talking about relatively simple motions, rising in the east and setting in the west from day to day, and the motion of the sun across the sky. And yesterday we saw one of the consequences of the motion of the sun along its path, the ecliptic, tilted 23.5 degrees to the celestial equator, was the, was the effect of the seasons, the changing amount of sunlight and the changing length of the day, working together at middle latitudes to give us spring, summer, winter, and fall. But I've been conspicuously leaving out one of the other most important astronomical bodies that you can see with the naked eye, the moon. And so today I want to now introduce another set of motions in the heavens that do not follow the same patterns that we saw before. I want to talk about the phases of the moon. So the key ideas for today's lecture are as follows. The first is to simply give you a fact, which you should all know, or at least will know today, is that the moon always keeps the same face towards the Earth. It always, we always see the same half of the moon over and over again. And this is telling us that the moon is in fact rotating at exactly the same rate that it is revolving or orbiting around the Earth. And as a consequence, we have a situation of synchronous rotation and revolution. This is the first example we're going to see in this class of a phenomenon we see repeated over and over again throughout the solar system of various whole number coincidences between, orbit peri between rotation periods and orbit periods or between two different time scales in the solar system. They're examples of what are called resonances. And this is the very first and most obvious, the synchronous rotation of the moon. Now, as the moon goes in its orbit around the Earth, the changing angle between the Earth, moon, and sun leads us to see different parts of that same face of the moon illuminated differently as I go through the course of the orbit. And I call these the phases of the moon, that Earth, moon, sun angle is often referred to as the phase angle. This is nothing more than a statement about a phase. It's nothing more than the fraction of the sunlit side that's visible to us. Of course, half the moon is always illuminated and half the moon is always in darkness. It's a sphere being illuminated by a light source far away. But we only see one face of it, and so we only see partial illumination of our visible hemisphere. This is going to lead us into a discussion of something we haven't talked about yet, although we'll lead into it over the next couple days, is the idea of sidereal and synodic periods for motions in the heavens. A sidereal period is the orbit of the moon with respect to the stars. It's about 27.3 days, 27 days in round numbers. And the synodic period, the time between new moons, or the orbit of the moon with respect to the Earth-Sun line, and that's 29 and a half days. And how that comes about is because there are two different motions at play here. The moon orbiting the Earth, and then the Earth and moon orbiting the Sun. And those two different periods begin to work against each other, and we get two different characteristic timescales that are going to be of importance to us. And we're going to see this kind of sidereal synodic split of timescales appear in a number of other contexts throughout the solar system, even when talking about just the Earth-Moon system. So we're going to use a familiar topic, which you should all know from grade school, the phases of the moon, and use it as a jumping off point for talking about commensurate periods and other pieces of information about multiple motions moving together in the heavens. 
This is adding a layer of complexity we haven't seen yet. So far, we've only talked about single motions. Now we're seeing our first real detailed compound motion. And it leads to some interesting phenomena we need to talk about. Now, before I do that, I want to begin with some questions. Now, these are questions I'm sure that almost all of you think you can answer. Some of you can think you can answer some of these. Let's just go through them. Having to do with phases of the moon. Let's face it, all of us walk outside. We've all seen the moon. In fact, how many of you saw the moon last night? Saw what phase it was? In an earlier day, every hand in the room would have gone up. And it always sort of bothers me just a little bit fact that people aren't really paying attention to what's up in the sky. And one of the things I'd like people to do when they come out of this class is when you walk out on a clear evening or a clear morning, look for the moon. What moon phase is it in? Actually start paying attention to that. You've seen the phases, but have you really looked at the moon and thought about what you were seeing? Now let's boil it down to eight questions. The first question is, is the moon always the same size in the sky? Does it sometimes appear bigger or smaller? Is it really Always the same. Second question, does the moon rotate, yes or no? Three, when does the full moon rise and set? Does it rise or set any old time or at very particular times? Has anyone ever seen a crescent moon at midnight? Do you ever see a full moon during the daytime? How long is a lunar month? How long does it take to go from new moon until new moon? What is that time? Is it 27 or 29 days or 28 and change? Which of those numbers is it? Question number seven. When you see the moon against a particular constellation, let's say I see the moon against the constellation of Gemini, when is the moon going to be in Gemini again? And when it is there, question number eight, is it going to have the same phase as I see it in? So let's say I walked outside at night and I saw the moon was in the first quarter phase, kind of a little half moon, half moon illuminated, and it was against the constellation of Gemini. When I see it against the constellation of Gemini again, first of all, how many days do I have to wait before that happens? And second, is it going to be first quarter phase again, or is it going to be something different? How many of you think you could answer all eight of these questions right now? How about seven, six? Five, four, three, two, or one. By the end of the lecture, you'll be able to answer all eight. And you'll be able to answer all eight of them in various contexts like homework and exams, even more practical. But you'll be able to answer these questions for yourself anytime. Press your roommates. Frighten the hell out of people. They'll think you're really smart. It's great. The moon is our natural satellite of the Earth. It basically is a large spherical body. It's a little less than a quarter the size of the Earth in diameter, and it follows an elliptical orbit around the Earth. Now, an elliptical orbit is sufficiently out of round that it becomes pretty noticeable in the case of the Moon. It's not a really big deviation. It's only 0.15% of deviation from a perfect circle, except that by being an ellipse, we take that circle and we slide the Earth slightly off-center. So I squash it just a little tiny bit, 15, basically 15 parts out of 10,000 out of round, and then I slide the whole thing to the side and put the Earth a little off-center of the squash circle. That's an ellipse. The other aspect of the Moon's orbit is it's not perfectly aligned with either the celestial equator or with the ecliptic. It's actually tilted at a third angle in between. Nature's never going to be nice to us and line everything up for us. So on a little sketch here, not drawn to scale, 
The ecliptic, remember, is the plane of the Earth's orbit, so it forms this Sun-Earth line here is the ecliptic. The obliquity of the ecliptic is the tilt of the Earth's north rotation axis, shown here as 23 and a half degrees relative to straight up and down, relative to the ecliptic. And then the Moon's orbit is tilted by this angle, which I've shown here to proper scale, of about five degrees. So we have the equator of the Earth, the ecliptic, and the tilt of the Moon. So now we have three planes in play. Needless to say, this is going to lead to some interesting phenomenon as we have motions in all three of these planes beginning to work against it, work with, each, with and against each other for time. So two basic facts. One is that the Moon's orbit is not circular, it's an ellipse, very slightly out of round, and that orbit is tilted with respect to both the equator of the Earth and with respect to the ecliptic of the Earth's orbit. It's got its own little plane to work with, and it's going to lead to a lot of interesting effects. This is an exaggeration of the ellipticity of the Moon's orbit. 0.15% would look like a circle in PowerPoint, so I've exaggerated it for, for detail here. The mean distance of the Earth to the Moon, if I averaged up all these distances, is about 384,400 kilometers. That's a nasty number to remember. A more useful number is to remember that it's about 60 times the radius of the Earth. So at any given instant, in round numbers, the Moon is about 60 times further from the center of the Earth than you are from the center of the Earth standing on its surface. And 60 is an easy number to keep in your head. If you sort of wanted to make a little scale model of the Earth and Moon system, you get a big ball and a smaller ball, one quarter its size. That's a pretty good approximation. Take the, the radius of the bigger ball and hold the Moon 60 times further away. So if I had a one foot diameter basketball here, say, and I wanted to show you where the moon was, I would get a three inch diameter softball, and I would go six inches times 60 is half of a foot, so it's 30 feet away. Very easy to make yourself a scale model of the Earth-Moon system. Because the Earth-Moon system has an elliptical orbit, the moon has two points, two special points along the orbit. When it is closest to the Earth, which I've drawn to the left on this diagram, we say that it is at perigee, nearest approach. Remember yesterday we talked about perihelion, closest to the sun. This is perigee, closest to the earth, G as in geology, same root. At that distance it's about 363,000 kilometers away. The opposite side is apogee, apo meaning away, g being the same root as geo for the earth. It's the furthest point from the, from the earth, and it's about a little over 405,000 kilometers away. Now, the circle's not that much out of round, but we're not located at the center of the squash circle. The Earth is located off to one side. As we'll learn when we talk about Kepler's laws, that location is not any location. It's actually one of the so-called foci of the ellipse. But for our purposes today, what this means is there's a fairly big difference between the moon at closest approach, over here at perigee, and the moon at apogee furthest away. It's about an 11% difference. And that 11% difference in distance means that the moon is going to appear about 11% larger when it's at perigee than it does when it's at apogee. That's a little tiny amount, but it's actually visible. In fact, I can show you this pair of wonderful photographs here showing you a photograph of the moon at perigee and a photograph of the moon at apogee. It's done by an amateur astronomer, Mr. Cuidado, in Portugal. 
And the red circle that I've drawn over here on top of the moon at perigee is basically the size of the moon at apogee. And you can see it's a tiny effect. You really have to look close for this. Greek astronomers and Babylonian astronomers were known to have been able to see this, but they had to actually develop some reasonably good measurement techniques to notice this. There are some other tricks for noticing it as well that we're going to meet on Monday when we talk about eclipses. It actually makes things kind of obvious. Notice that the moon does not look gigantic at perigee, just a little bit bigger. There's an interesting optical illusion that I'm sure you've all seen. When the moon rises, the full moon rises, low over the eastern horizon, and you see it with a foreground of buildings or trees, you probably had that effect of saying, wow, gee, look at the moon, the moon is huge. That's entirely an optical illusion of your visual system in your brain trying to make sense of a distant object and a nearby object and try to figure out, is that a little thing I don't worry about or a big thing that's about to jump me and eat me? So this is sort of you know, the reptile part of the brain stem trying to deal with the visual, visuals field and say, be afraid, be very afraid, run. And so our, our brain is a, is a very, very good image processor, but sometimes it fools us. And it fools us when we have a foreground perspective into thinking the moon is bigger. But if you ever see that, if you ever see that, and it's, it's really striking, it's just, a, it's, wow, it's just, the moon looks huge. Do a little brain check. Hold your hand out and put your thumb or maybe your finger up. If you have big fingers, it works better. Hold your thumb up and cover the moon with your thumb and kind of get an idea of how big the moon is relative to the size of your thumbnail. And then wait a few hours for the moon to get high in the sky where you no longer look so big and do the same thing. It's exactly the same size. It's all your brain fooling you. Now, the moon has a very special rotation and orbit. It's an example of a case where the rotation and the orbit are synchronous. And this leads to an interesting second optical illusion which we'll mention here in just a second. Now, by saying the rotation is synchronous, that means that the moon completes one rotation for every orbit that it completes around the Earth. Okay, that's what I mean by synchronous. The moon is actually rotating. But because the two are synchronized, that means that I get this illusion of the, actually, the actual fact, excuse me, that the moon always keeps one side always faced towards the Earth and another half is always visible and always facing away from the Earth. So we talk about the lunar near side, which is the hemisphere that faces towards us, and the lunar far side, which is the lunar hemisphere that we never see from the Earth. We have to fly in a spacecraft behind the Earth to see it, and we never see it. Notice there is no dark side of the moon. My apologies to the band Pink Floyd, but the dark side of the moon is whichever one happens to not be in sunlight at the time. It's not the one on the other side of the moon. A great album, Lousy Astronomy. This gives an interesting optical illusion, however. Because the motion, the rotation, and the orbit are synchronous, it gives you the illusion that the moon is not rotating. For example, I'm going to need something with a face. And what I have with a face is Marvin, which Katie very nicely brought from my office because I almost forgot him this morning. If I consider myself the Earth and Marvin here is the moon, and I had Marvin not rotating, not rotating relative to what? Well, the only standard we have for a reference frame in the sky is the stars. So if Marvin was not rotating, that means as Marvin orbited the Earth, he'd always be keeping his face towards you, who are acting as the stars today. Now, there's a little illusion there. Because in order for me to hold Marvin facing you, I've had to rotate him relative to my hand. 
So you would all make the claim, oh yeah, Marvin's rotating, because look, I can see your fingers twirling him around. Marvin's not rotating at all. He's keeping exactly the same configuration with respect to the room. I'm the one who's turning around. Now I'm going to hold Marvin in such a way that he always faces towards me. I'll hold him, hold him by the little comb on top of his helmet here. Now you see Marvin's backside. You see Marvin from uh, his left profile. You see Marvin's face. You see Marvin's right profile. Marvin is actually rotating around. But from my perspective, orbiting around me, the center of orbit of Marvin, I would say Marvin's not doing a thing. I haven't had to move my fingers at all. But Marvin is very much rotating around, completing one complete rotation when it, I complete one complete orbit, or when Marvin completes one orbit around me. So you see Marvin's butt. I come around, and you see Marvin's butt again. This gives you the illusion the moon is not rotating. In fact, the moon is simultaneously rotating and orbiting. And because they're in exact synchronization, the brain says there's only one motion going on. It's because it's an exact synchronization. If I sped up the rate of Marvin's rotation, you would say, oh, well, oops, yeah, you don't want to drop the moon. You would say, oh, of course. Marvin is rotating, and he's orbiting around the professor. Whereas here, your brain says, no, he's just orbiting around the professor. So the first illusion to get out of your head, the brain fools you, is the moon is, in fact, moving constantly. It's rotating, and its rotation speed is exactly locked. It's exactly synchronous to its orbit speed. There's a reason for that, and it has to do with tides, as we're going to learn a lot later in the class when we first have to learn about gravity. Just for some pictures, because we've been, obviously, the moon does not look like Marvin. This is a picture of the lunar near side. This is all we have ever seen throughout human history, although this is a very nice photograph from the Lick Observatory. The lunar far side, this was the very first view of this thing, was taken by a Soviet spacecraft that flew by the moon in the early 1960s. This is a beautiful photograph taken by the Galileo orbiter in 1990 on its way to the planet Jupiter. It shows the backside of the moon as you've never seen it before. To see this, we have to leave the Earth, because this side is always facing away from us, and we call it the lunar far side. But you'll notice it's not the dark side of the moon, because it is, in fact, fully lit by the sun. This was taken while it was new moon back on Earth. It just happened to be when the Galileo spacecraft went tooling by. This leads us, of course, quite naturally, to a discussion of the most obvious lunar phenomenon, the phases of the moon. We have a threefold system, the sun providing the light, the Earth providing our reference position where we're standing, and the moon is orbiting around us and rotating in such a way as to always keep the same face towards us. As I go through the course of an orbit, I'm going to see a different Earth-Moon-Sun angle. Now, the moon does not shine by its own light, invisible light. It shines entirely by reflected light from the sun. Now, the moon may look really, really bright during full moon, but in fact, it's only 7% reflective. If you wanted to see something that was 7% reflective, look around you in the room at the darkest, blackest thing you see someone wearing, like some really dark coat or a dark, dark sweater or something like that. That's not even close to 7% black. The moon is really, really black. And you can get an, only get an, a feeling for this when you see pictures of the astronauts covered in dark moon dust. They're absolutely filthy looking. They look like they've been scrubbing around in a coal mine. That's where you can get pretty close to black, 7%. So the moon is really dark. That's a good thing, or else it would be really bright during full moon. Now, 
As the moon continues around its orbit over the course of a roughly a month, we see a cycle of phases. The sunward, the, the half of the moon that's illuminated by the sun, is fully lit. The opposite hemisphere is fully dark. Which fraction of our visible hemisphere, the one that faces always towards us as bright, is the one that gives us the phase of the moon? If the near side of the moon is fully illuminated, I get full moon. If the far side is fully illuminated, that means our half is not going to be illuminated and we get new moon, and then I get the gradation of everything in between. So here's a simple cartoon. This is one you should be able to draw for yourselves. The key, uh, key picture here, and I've, I put all the planes together and drawn perfect circles and exaggerated scales to make this visible. The sun, the moon, and the earth, day and night shown as bright and dark, respectively. This position here is new moon. The moon is actually not visible. In fact, I sort of draw it here as a blank black spot. When the moon now continues along in sort of a, again, a right-hand rule, north pole of the Earth is this way, Earth rotates this way, Earth orbits this way, and the moon rotates this way. Gee, why are they all going the same way? Well, we'll learn that in a few weeks. Here at Waxing Crescent, the moon has moved about an eighth of the way through its orbit. The sun is over there. And now remember, the visible half of the moon to the Earth, the near side, is that half that's going to be inside the circle of the orbit here. So at new moon, everything inside the circle of the orbit is black. Here, only a tiny fraction is lit, and the rest is dark. And so I would see a crescent moon. And I call it a waxing crescent because it's growing or waxing in the old sort of fanciful English language. When the moon gets to this position so that the sun, earth, moon line is an exact right angle, in the line that's in my visible hemisphere, the half of the moon that points towards the earth, half is in the sunlight, half is in darkness. At the same time, half of the far side is in sunlight, and half of the far side is in darkness. So I'm actually only able to see one quarter of the surface of the moon. Okay, I can only see one half of the moon at a given time. So I call that traditionally the first quarter moon because it looks like a quarter of a hemisphere. And I have a nice dark line, the terminator, blackness on one side, light on the other. And I call it the first quarter because it's the first quarter moon that I see since the last new moon. New moon sets my zero point. Over here, coming up on the other half of the orbit at this intermediate point, again, the visible portion of the moon is the part towards me. Now a big fraction of the lunar near side is illuminated and only a small part is in darkness. And I get this sort of waxing, it's growing in size, but it's gibbous, it's kind of fat, but it's not full yet. So I go from a thin crescent to sort of half illuminated or quarter moon, and then I get to sort of a growing fat moon until I finally get to the point that the moon and the earth and the sun are on a line again, but now with the moon having the fully illuminated face, the near side, and we call that the full moon. It's a weird language. We go from quarter to full in half of the phase cycle. Uh, kind of weird. The reason why it's called quarter is both because of quarter visibility and you're one quarter of the way through the entire phase cycle. So the language is kind of inconsistent, but it's a traditional language which has been built up over thousands of years. Now once I've grown to maximum size, the moon is going to continue on the rest of its orbit, and now the moon will begin to wane. I will begin to see less and less of my near side illuminated, and so I simply reverse the cycle of phases on the waxing side, 
I have waning gibbous at this intermediate position. When I am once again on the moon, sun, earth, moon angle is 90 degrees, but now the last time I get a quarter moon before I go into the last quarter of my orbit is last quarter, sometimes called third quarter, but that's a very rare usage. Finally, I get down to the point where I only see a thin sliver as the moon is slowly but surely waning and growing darker, and then I go back to new moon and I repeat the cycle over and over again. So that's the cycle of the moon phases. Now I've drawn this cartoon as a, as a moon in a circular orbit. But what if you were actually to take a stop action movie of the moon over the course of a month? It looks a little more complicated than that. This is a gorgeous picture I picked up off the web from that same amateur who took that perigee apogee photograph. Andreas, Andres Cuidado, I think is his name. I can't remember, it was always a Cuidado. You notice that it's not quite so simple as I just drew. Now first you see the, the shape of the phases. You do really see, oh yeah, the moon is a three-dimensional sphere. You really get that, wow, it's a sphere, look at this. You can also see it getting further away and closer. That's your apogee, perigee, far, close going on. But you'll notice some other things. There's a little bit of nodding going on and stuff like that. That perfect synchronization was for a perfect circle. But the moon is on an ellipse and moves at slightly different speeds. And so in this movie, you can just start seeing that, you know, it's really not moving at exactly the same speed. Sometimes the rotation gets a little ahead. Sometimes the rotation gets a little behind. So it wasn't quite the perfect Marvin and me nose to nose rolling around. There's a lot more going on. The Greeks actually picked up on this. People in the Middle Ages picked up on this. Solving the problem of the motion of the moon was a non-trivial problem. And this movie makes manifest what it took many years to observe to figure out. So this becomes a challenge to explain with simple motions. We're going to leave that story behind today. We're going to pick it up later as we talk about the rise of physical astronomy from the Greeks on. Now again, I'll just sort of walk through this very quickly. This is just a summary of what the various phases are. New and full moon represent the two times when the moon, earth, and sun are more or less on the same line. They're not perfectly lined up because remember the axis of the moon's orbit is tilted with respect to the ecliptic, so they only rarely line up. The moon and sun are on the same side of the sky when it's new moon. The near side is in total darkness, and the moon and sun rise together. Because the moon is up there with the sun. It's not exactly on top of the sun unless you had an eclipse, but maybe a little bit above or below, as much as five degrees above or below, because that's the tilt of the moon's orbit with respect to the equator. But if the sun is at new moon, the moon and sun are together on the same side of the sky, so they rise together in the east and set together in the west. We don't see the moon at new moon because it's up during the daytime and too close to the sun, you can't see it in the glare. You have to wait until about 14 hours before or after the exact time of new moon under exactly right conditions to see the moon. Within that sort of 28-hour window, either side of new moon, it's really hard to see the moon without special equipment. The full moon is the opposite situation. The sun is on one side of the sky as seen from the Earth. The moon is on the opposite side. It's a situation often referred to as opposition, as we'll see when we talk about planets. And what this means is, if the f sun is setting, the full moon, because it's on the opposite side of the sky, will just come over the horizon just as the sun sets. 
And similarly, as the moon goes overhead, it's overhead at midnight, full moon is overhead at midnight. As the full moon sets in the west, the sun is just rising in the east. It's not exact, right, because we're moving along our orbit and there's a lot of slides going on, but to a first approximation, when you have new moon, the moon and sun rise and set together and we don't see it. When we have full moon, because the moon's on the opposite side, the moon rises as the sun sets and then the full moon sets as the sun rises. So that tells us what time of day we expect to see the full moon. I don't see the full moon any old time because full moon is a particular configuration. I only see the moon, full moon, when the sun is nowhere in the sky or just rising or setting. Quarter moon is the other useful configuration. It's the Earth, moon, and sun on an exact right angle line. So this means that when I'm on either of these positions at right angles, that means half the near side is illuminated and half the far side is illuminated. So I see a half moon shape. At first quarter, I'm in between the new moon and the full moon, and the last quarter is between the full moon and the new moon. But its time of rise and set is a bit more nuanced, and I have to draw a picture to see that. Waxing and waning. Waxing is increasing illumination. So we have waxing crescent, which is just after new moon, and waxing gibbous, which is just before the full moon. It's a little bit over half in this picture drawn here. And then finally, waning is decreasing illumination. Just a little quick review. A waning gibbous is just after full moon, when it's starting to grow darker and darker day by day. And finally, waning crescent is when the moon just has a tiny sliver visible just before it disappears, behind, dis disappears in the glare of the sun at new moon. So those are the basic phases. Again, sort of just pull that picture apart there. And we can see within this some hints as to how we can figure out when I expect to see the different phases of the moon at different times of the day and night. Moonrise and moonset. When do these occur? They're not completely random. They follow a very specific pattern because we have to look at that sun, earth, moon angles that are made that determines the phase means it will rise and set at a very particular time. You don't see all moon phases at all times. And this is where you can sort of be now the astronomy geek when you're watching a movie. Watch for silly mistakes like a crescent moon at midnight. You never see a crescent moon at midnight. Because a crescent moon only occurs when the moon is either moving away from the sun on the sky, away from new moon, or moving towards the sun on the sky, towards new moon in the waning phase. And so the moon and sun are always going to be close together in the sky. Midnight is the opposite side of the sky from the sun, so you'll never see a crescent moon at midnight. You'll also never see a last quarter moon at sunset because the last quarter moon doesn't rise until midnight because it's at a 90 degree angle. It won't get above the horizon until the sun is well below the horizon. We'll see a picture of that in just a second. You also see, never see the full moon during the day because full moon is on the opposite side of the sky from the sun. The full moon is overhead or at its highest position in the sky at midnight. So you can never see a full moon just after sunset. And it's really fun to watch this because a lot of movies screw this up. They show a wonderful picture of the rising full, of the full moon right up high in the sky just after the sunset. And you go, oops, wrong. We know you actually made your filming two weeks later, didn't you? The time of rising and setting depends upon this Earth-Moon-Sun Earth, configuration as viewed from the surface of the rotating Earth. So this is where we have to now drop ourselves onto the perspective of the Earth, 
we're going to look down on the Earth and ask about the different times of rising and setting. So let's take first quarter moon. I didn't choose this one accidentally. That's the phase right now. Here's the sun, the Earth, and the moon. I'm looking down. The north pole's up this way. So I rotate around this way. The moon orbits around this way. And again, right hand rule. Right hand north is out of the screen. So thumb out. Fingers curl around to show you the direction. I need an observer here. So Mr. Smiley's going to be my observer. When it's noon, the sun is overhead. But at first quarter moon, the moon is just going to be rising above my eastern horizon. Remember, the Earth rotates towards the east, so west to east from top to bottom, as I've drawn it, drawn it in this picture. So Mr. Smiley would see the sun overhead, but would see the moon rising in the east at noon. But it's usually so bright at noon, you'd have to look really sharp to be able to see the moon during the daytime. If I wait now, about six hours later, it's now sunset. Rotating towards the east, so Mr. Smiley sees the sun sinking in the west, the moon will be straight overhead at sunset. And for those of you who saw the moon last night, I did when I was still going home, you'll notice it was high in the southern sky, just about the time that the sun was setting. If you saw it later, it would have been in the western half of the sky. If you actually were sharp-eyed enough to catch it just before sunset, you would have seen it in the eastern half of the sky. At midnight, Mr. Smiley's come all the way around. The sun is at his feet in this case. And now the moon is on the western horizon and setting at midnight. And then, of course, at sunrise, the moon is nowhere to be seen. So if you see a first quarter moon at sunset, if you see a half moon at sunset, you know immediately that's first quarter. But if you saw the half moon at sunrise, last quarter. So which phase of the moon you see at which time, even if you weren't paying attention, even if it was raining for three weeks and you lost track of where the moon phases were, you wouldn't need to go to the internet. Just go out and look at the moon and see the, the phase of the moon and its relationship to sunrise or sunset, the time of day you saw it, and boom, you're right aligned in the middle of the lunar calendar, the lunar cycle of phases. That's how people have done it for thousands of years. For full moon, a similar set of pictures. At noon, Mr. Smiley is here. The sun is overhead, but the moon is below his feet, so the moon is not visible. By sunset, as the sun sinks in the west, up there's the moon. It's rising in the east. At midnight, now the moon is overhead, and the sun is below the feet. And at sunrise, as the sun rises in the east, the moon sets in the west. Same basic picture. So if you ever get confused about this particular situation, if you're asked a question on a test, say, or a homework about when would you see a certain moon rise, draw yourself this picture, these kinds of pictures. Draw the Earth, Moon, and Sun in the right, right configuration at that phase. Draw where you would be at sunrise, noon, sunset, and midnight. And if you can't remember which one's which, just think about it in terms of the rotation of the Earth. You're rotating towards something is when it rises. You rotate away from it when it sets. And if you get that down, if you can draw this picture and reconstruct this diagram for yourself, you've got 90% of the questions I could possibly ask about this material, and you can figure it out for yourself. The point is not to be able to memorize it. I never memorize this stuff. I draw this picture for myself, and I figure it out from there. That's the way you learn the stuff. And of course, last quarter, well, we've been through that. At noon, the moon is setting. At sunset, you can't see it at all. 
At midnight, the moon rises. So if you're out a little late at night, have some studying or something like that, and you see the moon rise, it's probably last quarter. And of course, it'll be overhead at sunrise. And if you ever see the moon coming up early in the morning, like on the way to class, that tells you what the time of the moon lunar month it is. Now, this leads to a couple of interesting questions. The first of these is, what would an astronaut near the lunar near side see during one month? We have sent astronauts to the moon. Twelve men have walked on the moon in the 1970s and early, late 1960s. They didn't stay for a full month, but they were on the lunar near side. It's easy to communicate with them with radio if the radio waves don't have to try to penetrate the moon, which they can't. So what would they see? Well, the answer they would see is because the moon's rotation and orbit are synchronous, the Earth would neither rise nor set, but stay pretty close to the same position in the sky. It would kind of wobble back and forth. It would never rise or set, as seen from that location. It would be seen to be rotating on its axis. You'd see the continents turning around and around and around and the weather patterns going. And you would see the Earth going through phases as you spent a month. But they'd be funny kind of phases because you'd be looking at the Earth and you'd see it kind of turning around, but then you'd see this rotating pattern of illumination like that moon movie that we showed. Unfortunately, we've never gone there, so I can't really show you what that looks like. We certainly haven't been there for a month. And I'd have to do it with a computer simulation. Here, in fact, is what the Earth looks like viewed from the Taurus Littrow Valley by the astronauts of Apollo 17. And it turns out that the time they were there, it was half Earth phase, although I'll leave it as an exercise to figure out was it last quarter Earth or first quarter Earth when the astronauts were on the Taurus Littrow Valley. All right. Now, there's two different time scales associated with motions around the moon. We can look at the time for the moon to complete one orbit around the Earth as seen with respect to the stars. The moon's, this motion with respect to the stars, we call a sidereal period. Sidereal comes from the Latin word sidus, meaning stars. And this sidereal period is 27.3 days. Now, because this is pretty close to the length of the calendar month, we call it a sidereal month. This means how long does it take the moon to complete one orbit with respect to the background stars? We measure this by looking at the motions of the moon against the stars as seen from the Earth. So for example, oops, this was last year's slide. In one night, I might see last year in 2005, September 30th, the moon was a thin waxing crescent, waning crescent in the constellation of Leo. 27.3 days later, on 2005, October 26th, it was again in the constellation of Leo, but now it was a waning crescent, a little bit bigger than the last time. So it's not exactly the same phase, but it's against the same stars. In fact, here's a picture from October of 99, when I made this picture here the first time. Here's the moon in Gemini, and then 27 days later, here's the moon in Gemini again, but you'll notice a different phase. It's quarter moon here, it's gibbous moon down here a month later. Same background stars, different phases. The synodic period is the time between successive new moons. Or when I go from new moon to new moon, is about 29 and a half days. I call that the synodic month. So the sidereal month with respect to the stars, synodic month with respect to the new moon cycle, this phase cycle. This is the month that shows up in lunar calendars. For example, we are currently in the Islamic month of Ramadan. That calendar starts and ends on the new moon, the way, and the first appearance, in fact, of the waxing crescent moon. <coughs> Flash by that really quickly. 
what's going on? Why are these two times different? Well, the reason is we have two motions going on, the orbit of the moon around the Earth and the orbit of the Earth around the sun. So the sidereal period is how long it takes the moon to return to the same position with respect to the stars. The synodic period is a little longer because the moon has to go a bit further to get back on the Earth-Sun-Moon line. So I have a double compound motion going on, and now I've got to go waltzing with the moon across the stage. And now you can see we're having these two different cycles as recognition of two different periods dancing together in the sky. We're going to see some interesting consequences of this for when an extra period lines up and we have an exact lineup between the Earth, Moon, and Sun that are called eclipses, and we'll see that on Monday. No, they'll, they'll come.